Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. John Christopher and Ms. Kelly Chesson from DriveSavers, discussing recovering data from a bad hard drive. Also, we'll find out how a solar flare is created. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rock. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, how are how are the ski slopes doing these days? Well, they're 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 still kicking my ass, but <laughs> that's that's their prerogative, not mine. So it turns out there's a whole science to developing the artificial snow that using some of these ski slopes. Oh, you just don't throw water into the air and hope it uh, snows. That's the easiest way. You know, you get a hose, uh, put the water under high pressure, and as it comes out, chills out a little bit. You know, forming these ice crystals. But uh, what scientists have been doing these days is bring additives. Oh, okay. So some sort of nucleating crystals or things like that? Nucleating crystals. So typically something like, say, sodium iodide. It could be dust, whatnot. Something more popular these days is proteins. Proteins? Yes. Ah, so any particular types of proteins? or? I think some of them are harvested from marine uh, plankton-like creatures. Okay. And uh, this new company that came out, I believe it's called Aquatrols. They have made a polyethylene glycol type substance that helps these water droplets form into uh, ice crystals. Okay, and so this is this is not a protein. This is just a uh, just a, a organic molecule. Organic molecule oh. that will be found in your uh, shampoos. Well, actually, that's kind of unusual because you would expect the uh, polyethylene glycol then to be hydrophobic. So it turns out that this molecule helps to uh, disrupt the hydrogen bonding among the uh, liquid water molecules, and that somehow helps to crystallize the solid part of it. Right. Interesting. So maybe next time you're on the slopes and you're a little hungry, you could either uh, eat some snow, get a little protein in there, or, or wash yourself with a, <laughs> the PEG uh, snow. And so amazingly, uh, one of the substitutes they use for snow is potato flakes. Potato flakes? According to Hollywood, they have the uh, most realistic snow-like um, appearance, on, appearance screen. on the screen. So, the, But they don't actually use those to crystallize snow no, particles. Okay. No. The only problem is uh, once it starts raining, you basically have potato slush <laughs> on your ground. You know, that could be a good thing. I, I've actually been a fan of the potato. <laughs> and I'm sure they would have been uh, during the Great Potato Famine as well if it had been raining potatoes. <laughs> uh, so if people want to find out more about this. More about uh, snow-making technology, uh, go to the January 13th issue of Chemical and Engineering News. Right, so do you have a preference for how you like to fertilize your embryos? Uh, naturally, of course. Natu- naturally is always a good way. Uh, but uh, outside of that, if you're fertilizing in a Petri dish, would you want to keep your embryos there for a long time? Probably not, and with not too much acidity either, right? That's, that's in fact true. Uh, in fact, a recent study has shown this, that uh, test tube mice apparently do not behave normally if they've been cultured in a Petri dish for extended periods of time. 
Really? Yes. So the initial environments actually affect their later development, huh? It, it would seem so. So this actually has a profound implications for in vitro fertilization technologies. Even for humans? <coughs> for humans, yeah, as well. Uh, because it turns out that uh, the longer that the mouse is uh, held in culture, the more poorly it does on standard behavioral tests like memory or finding its way through a maze or things like that. Wow. Is it because of the quality of the embryo or the genes in the egg somehow degrade over time? It's, it's really thought that perhaps part of it might be due to a combination of those factors. But certainly the, the media that's there, the sort of culturing media, might not be the same or optimal as you would find in the uterus. And so this changes the gene expression, it's thought. And as a result, then, these slight differences cause a little bit of uh, difference in terms of uh, the, the embryo development. Are the mice that result from this, are they uh, somehow defective? They, they just apparently seem to do a little bit worse on memory tests, and uh, they don't seem to explore mazes quite as boldly as other ma- mice do. So it's, it's certainly interesting, and it, uh, it certainly points towards uh, reproductive biologists keeping human embryos uh, out of the culture for as long as time as possible. Right. Well, something a little bit uh, related that I read recently was that it, it turns out for guys who give birth later than life... Their guys turn, giving birth? <laughs> I mean... Uh, yeah, who father Who father at a later age. Yeah. It turns out that their kids have a higher percentage of schizophrenia. Is that right? So somehow it affects their, their brain development hmm. when they father at a later age. Intriguing. I guess I better get cracking on it then. <laughs> Me too. Although I might be uh, predisposed to schizophrenia already. <laughs> anyway, so this was interesting work. It was carried out by Richard Schultz, a cell biologist at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and published in our favorite journal, PNAS. Oh, PNAS. PNAS. Can you can you have a better article to uh, talk about fertilization than penis? <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have it sung to the tune of YMCA? <laughs> <laughs> PNAS. Uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So what did you do for the Valentine's? I think I sat quietly at home and cried into my cereal. So you didn't use the power of the flower? The power of the flower? Yeah. Uh, if, if that's some sort of kinky sex toy thing, no. <laughs> but I'm not talking about kinky toys here. Uh, actually, another way for flowers to spread the love. So there's a Danish company out there, and they're using flowers to detect landmines. Yeah, well, I guess my, my love life is a battlefield. <laughs> or love is a battlefield, right? So. Okay, well, how are they using flowers, then, to find landmines? They genetically engineer this type of weed. I think it's a type of thales. And when you plant these weeds to where there might be uh, landmines, it can uh, react to uh, escaping nitric oxide coming from these bombs. Okay, and so somehow the weed, what, it changes, uh, it grows quicker or what Right, so it turns out if the roots can detect these nitric oxide, the flowers will change color. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. But the the problem is you have to wait for the weed to grow. How long does that take? At least a few weeks, I guess. Okay, so just you can't go into the field for a while. Right, but I mean, once you sow the seeds everywhere, you get an aerial view of where... uh, of you the know, where the colors of the flowers are different, oh, and then, uh, go in there and uh, dig it up. Neat. Not only will make the uh, fields more beautiful, but more safe as well. So people want to learn more about that. Uh, they can actually go to an article in Yahoo uh, two weeks ago. Well, uh, is part of the reason maybe you stayed home was because of leprosy? Leprosy. Yeah, that's right. Maybe I do have that. <laughs> Just didn't want to admit it. <laughs> Very few people do, and it's odd. I don't know why. It's it's such a social thing. But anyway, so uh, it turns out that there might be a link between leprosy and Parkinson's disease. Really? Yes. So what exactly is leprosy anyways? So leprosy is a disease that's caused by a microbe called Mycobacterium leprae. Uh-huh. And what is it, it does is, it con- uh, well, it, it winds up disfiguring its victims with boils and decaying flesh. Right. And uh, underlying this disease are some degenerating nerves. 
Okay. And what happens is the uh, bacteria actually attacks certain types of nerves that are involved in, or certain types of cells that are involved in uh, insulating nerve cells. Oh, like the glial cells? Yeah, the glial cells, in particular ones, these called Schwann cells. Okay. And it turns out that the group of researchers have found out that uh, certain types of people are more susceptible to getting leprosy than other people. Really? And this is actually due to a genetic flaw, which appears to occur in the same genes that are found in Parkinson's susceptible patients. It's kind of interesting because uh, it hadn't been thought before that the types of pathways, which are essentially biochemical pathways involved in cleaning up the waste of the cell, would be involved in such a disease like leprosy. Mm -hmm. uh, so this finding that basically the same genes are involved uh, suggests maybe some common mechanism between uh, the two types of diseases. I guess the type of germs that could affect them, are they related to? Or? Oh, so in, in Parkinson's disease, I guess uh, what happens is just a genetic deficiency that eventually causes the death of certain types of cells in right. part of the brain called substantia nigra. Uh -huh. Perhaps the uh, bacteria then might create sort of the same conditions for Schwann cells that occur in substantia nigra cells oh, naturally. Okay. So. so there's still no evidence of the actual bacteria being in the Parkinson's uh, No, no, process. it's just it's actually just sort of the same mechanisms that might be involved in the same cells. I see. Uh, so this was very fun work. It was carried out by Erwin Schur of McGill University in Montreal and published in the 25th January uh, edition of Nature. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out how to recover data from broken hard drives. To Berkeley Grocks. In our tech driven world, we rely heavily on digital devices and computers. While we're led to believe that these devices do not break down, unfortunately they do, and our worst nightmare is probably the failure of a hard drive and the prospect of never seeing your data again. But we also live in an age of second chances, and fortunately for many people and myself who just had a crashed hard drive, it is possible to recover this lost data. Uh, joining us right now, is John Christopher from DriveSavers to talk about recovering data from damaged hard drives. Uh, Mr. Christopher, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, uh, could you tell us exactly what you do and uh, how you came about doing it? Sure. Well, what DriveSavers does is it's a data recovery service company. 
Um, so what we do is we have customers all around the world who send us their crashed and broken computer systems. We go in and we rescue the data and return it back to them, typically within a 24-48 hour period, and they they hopefully get everything back up and running uh, in a very short span of time. And we've been doing this now since 1985. I've been here for uh, nine years, my ninth year here, recovering data. Very good. So before we proceed, maybe you could tell us how exactly a hard drive works and some of the problems that can occur. Hard drives are mechanical devices. I guess technically you'd say they're electromechanical devices. They have some moving parts inside them, and for a lot of us out there, we don't really like to think about the inner workings of our computer systems. Typically, we want to just push the button and get some work done. But um, what happens uh, is that hard drives, because of the, the fact that they're mechanical, they every drive that's made today will fail. Everyone's going to die. That's, that's a given. And uh, the way that the drives work if you're not already aware, is that there are hard disk platters inside the drive. The platters themselves are typically made out of glass or ceramic, and they're magnetically coated. Um, the platters are stacked up on a center spindle. The spindle has a spindle motor, which contains some ball bearings and some lubricant, and the motor spins at a very high rate of speed. It spins the platters up to anywhere from um, 7,200 to 15,000 RPMs. So it's very, very fast. And also inside the drive uh, is an armature known as an actuator assembly, um, which contains sets of read-write heads that read and write the actual data Mm -hmm. on the drive. These heads float on a cushion of air inside the drive, which is a sealed housing. Uh, Because the drive motor spins at a high rate of speed, it pushes uh, the read-write head up just a, a few microns above the surface of the disk platter. So when data is read and written that way, it never actually touches the disk platter surface. Drives can fail uh, simply because of the mechanical parts inside that that break down. And as you can imagine, when you have a platter that's spinning at 15,000 RPMs, that armature, the actuator assembly, moves at a speed greater than 60 miles per hour across the uh, uh, radially across the surface of the platter. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can happen over time is that the media surface does break down, and there are Uh, some uh, minute particles of debris that fly around inside the hard drive and they can get sandwiched underneath those read-write heads and every time that head uh, flies over an area that might be damaged it can put um, tiny pits or what eventually become grooves in the surface of of the drive and that's known as a head crash. Other things that can happen um, include the motor um, simply burning out or the electronics dying on the drive itself or if if it takes any kind of fluctuation in power that could cause the drive to uh, simply stop working. And that along with uh, some of the more logical problems, things like uh, accidentally deleting data or accidentally reformatting a drive, virus infections, or just straight corruption, which can occur pretty much any time when you use your system if it's not shut down properly and the directory structure on the disk, your virtual table of contents, Uh, could be corrupted or damaged in some way and prevent you from booting up or even getting into your system or pulling your critical files off. So what what would be the uh, typical symptom of a a, uh, hard drive failure? Are there any particular sounds that you should be looking out for or other other indications? Yes, I think sounds are a very good indicator. Uh, You know, every hard drive has its own kind of uh, sound or rhythm. If you listen closely enough, you can actually hear the way that your drive, what it sounds like when your drive spins up and gets to a ready state, and what it sounds like when it's it's reading and writing your data. 
Well, if it makes any kind of unusual sounds, any kind of whining or repetitive clicking or uh, grinding noises, those are obviously uh, situations where there's definite uh, physical damage that, that's likely to be occurring with the drive. Um, and at that point, I actually have to caution the users not to continue trying to use the drive at that point because uh, with the drive spinning at a higher rate of speed, a great deal of damage can occur in a very short period of time. So it's best to just simply shut down the system and call drive savers to get your data back. So with us also right now is uh, Kelly Chesson, uh, one of the operators at DriveSavers. Uh, she was a former suicide prevention uh, hotline operator. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, could you tell us how you prevent customers from panicking? Well, usually they're panicked when they call in, so it's a matter of helping them through their, their state of emotional crisis and um, letting them know that there is a, a solution to their problem. As you can imagine, people lose everything from their first baby pictures on their computer to you know, the next big, I don't want to say business um, you know, thing that's going to get them that promotion or get the big account for, mm-hmm. for their company. So people are really upset when their computer crashes and they don't have anything backed up. So when they call in, you get every range of emotion from crying to screaming to just exasperation. So really, a lot of what I do is just listen to them and, and, and just let them tell their story and let them know that DriveSavers has a solution mm-hmm. and uh, there is hope out there after all. And what's the typical recovery rate? Uh, how successful are you in uh, getting the data back? Um, it's about a 90% success, successful rate. So, yeah, it's pretty high. Yeah, I understand. Uh, you know, typically your problems involve a drive head failure, but you've also had some uh, extreme cases, uh, fires or, you know, falling into the water. Uh, maybe you could share some of these stories? I think that's one part of our business that we see not, not frequently, but occasionally we do see situations where there's um, been some kind of disaster, or we, we sometimes call them disgasters, uh, <laughs> where a computer system or hard drive has sustained some kind of severe uh, damage. And when I say severe damage, I'm talking about a flood or a fire or or what have you. And in fact, if you go to our website at uh, www.drivesavers.com, we do have an area which is a a kind of a museum of disasters that we call. And you can go in and see some of these uh, strange strange cases of data loss and including um, uh, one known as a power book that sank to the bottom of the Amazon River and what happened with that one was it was on a cruise ship, a French cruise ship back in 1993 and the ship was going down the Amazon River and um, it hit a sunken underwater barge and started taking on water and everyone was rescued from the ship uh, including a performer who was a woman a juggler there uh, on on the ship and she had been writing her memoirs and keeping them on her power book and it was very important data to her and she waited for the salvage operation to begin um, and things didn't move as quickly as she really wanted so she rented some scuba gear she was a, a certified scuba diver she dove down into the Amazon River and uh, was able to find her submerged stateroom and had the presence of mind to bring along her stateroom key and she was able to go in and rescue her Amazon PowerBook along with her Amazon PowerBook her Apple PowerBook we call it the Amazon PowerBook <laughs> and uh, it became the Amazon PowerBook after this 
And uh, we were able to rescue that data. She had heard about drive savers from Apple Computer, and she uh, shipped it to us um, in a styrofoam container, and it still contains some Amazon River water, in fact. <laughs> and uh, we went in and uh, pulled out her drive and uh, disassembled it in our clean room, rebuilt it from scratch, and were able to get her data back, including um, everything that, including the memoirs that she was looking for, uh, all of her data was recovered. So, you can see the what we call Amazon Power Book um, in our Museum of Disasters, along with some others, uh, including uh, an iMac that was in a fire, a house fire, um, here in Marin County, and uh, a laptop that was uh, run over, backed up, uh, over I should say, by a vehicle and. Uh, and in fact, another laptop computer, which was an Apple PowerBook, that was run over by a shuttle bus at the Macworld show back in Boston several years ago. So there's quite a few uh, interesting, interesting items to look at there. I noticed that you had also some celebrities at your service. Uh, maybe you can mention some of them. We have, yeah, we have lots of celebrities. We have a, also a Hall of Fame up on our website. Um, you can check that out. People like Sean Connery and Sting. Uh, Adam Sandler, Sarah Jessica Parker, lots of lots of famous people that are up there. Uh, so I, I, I think number one, uh, the number one thing I want to say about that is that obviously data loss happens to everybody. It happens to famous people, <laughs> celebrities, <laughs> as well as you and I. So uh, so don't fear the data loss. It just it happens to everybody. But um, one of the famous folks, in fact, that sent us a hard drive was uh, a writer and producer from the Simpsons TV program. And um, the, sh the, the drive contained 12 scripts, unproduced scripts. In fact, these were the only copies of the scripts that were on the drive. And uh, um, I worked on that job and called back the producer of the show. Uh, I was unaware at the time that he was a producer of the show. I, I, I didn't know anything about really who he was or what the job was, which was kind of unusual because I was a huge Simpsons fan, still am. And... Um, when I called him back and he said, uh, check out that folder called Scripts. And on my way there, while I was talking to him, looking for this folder called Scripts, I saw all this uh, Simpsons games and icons and all kinds of stuff there. And I thought, wow, this guy must be a Simpsons fanatic. <laughs> and uh, opened up the Scripts folder and saw these scripts. He says, well, check out one of the scripts. And I opened it up, uh, took a look at it, and I said, wow, these are great. Where did you get these? He says, well, I wrote them. And uh, he was nice enough to send us uh, an autographed picture. Actually, it's a, an autographed picture of, of uh, the Simpsons family with, uh, um, with, ev with everybody there. And uh, you should check that out and see what that's all about, actually, on the website, because it's very funny. And um, uh, one of the scripts I recovered was called uh, Who Shot Mr. Burns? And that was a uh, season finale that they had on there. So I'd like to think that uh, they wouldn't have been able to produce that stuff without those shows without our drive savers <laughs> help. <laughs> I guess we should have got some credits in the in the show, but we didn't. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess we're running a little bit out of time here. Um, are, are there any last words you'd like to add about drive savers or uh, your job here? I, I would just like to encourage everyone to back up your data. I'm being very proactive here. If you actually back up your data and check your backups, and get acquainted with your backup software. That would be my third tip to pass on. Take the time and learn how to use it before your drive crashes. You'll never need drive saver services, but you know we are around if you need to get your data back. That's what we're here for. 
Excellent. And we were just talking to John Christopher and Kelly Chesson from Drive Savers. Uh, for more information, you can check out their website at www.drivesavers.com. And they do offer a discount for students and academics, so for those of you with a thesis stuck on their hard drive or valuable data, give them a ring. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out how a one-way mirror works. Stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks on this week's Everyday Science. We'll find out how a one-way mirror works. Ever wonder how a one-way mirror works? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Here in this police station, we'll get just the facts, ma'am, about how a one-way mirror works. Go ahead. Have a seat in this nice, bright interrogation room. Comfy? Great, because there's the one-way mirror right over there. And from this side of the mirror, we can't see through it. We can only see our reflection. Notice that this mirror starts with a sheet of smoked glass right here. Behind that glass is a very thin coating of reflective paint, typically an aluminum alloy or silver nitrate. Then another sheet of glass sits behind that kind of like a glass sandwich with reflective paint in between. Thanks to that inner reflective layer and the brightness of this room, most of the light that strikes the mirror bounces back and we see our reflection. But look, the thinness of that inner reflective layer also allows a little bit of light from our side to pass through. This means the people in the dimly lit observation room on the other side of the mirror are seeing something different. They're seeing us. The darkness of their room prevents them from seeing their own reflections. Instead, they see through the glass to what's happening on our side, though not as clearly as through a regular window. The story you have just heard is true. Well, mystery solved. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, making science make sense. Whoa, I hope no one's looking at me from the other side of the mirror. 
And now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Charles. And the question was, what causes the solar flares? Well, uh, as you may already know, the the sun has a very, very powerful magnetic field, but uh, this uh, magnetic field is not uh, always uniform. In fact, uh, there are many many fluctuations, and sometimes uh, these fluctuations are so great that it also carries the ionic matter from the sun, and that's how the solar flares occur. Ah, right then, Tokyo Kid. Aye, that's really all that great. Oh, now it's a crazy scootsman with this week's question of the week. Ah, well, you know, it's all that great stuff. We're all made of them. It's the genes in our bodies, and the genes make us different, but exactly what is a gene? What defines it? Well, if you know the answer, or just think you know the answer, email us at groxandhotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might inherit the earth. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.